Isaiah 42, beginning at verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. The second reading is from Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Well, good evening, and the first couple of verses of this wonderful psalm again. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to God as long as I live. This is full volume, full voice praise, and how wonderful to be here this evening, singing praise to God together, just, just wonderful hearing so many voices singing praise for Jesus and all he's done for us. An early church father, Cassidorus, wrote of this psalm, once again, hallelujah, knocks at the doors of our hearts. I love that image. Hallelujah, knocks at the doors of our hearts. This psalm is an invitation to be caught up into this Praise. Actually, the, the very first line of the psalm, it's probably, a, a, maybe for many of us, the, the one Hebrew word that's familiar, hallelujah. 
praise the Lord, or as we might put it, praise ye the Lord. This is a plural command. The psalmist is wanting all people everywhere to praise the Lord for his greatness and invites us to do the same. But lest we think the psalmist is going to be some kind of hypocrite, he also says, praise the Lord, my soul. He wants all people out there everywhere to praise God. He wants his own heart to be captivated by God and to praise him. Mission, glorious to be taught from Psalm 67 last night. God's heart for the nations and this glorious task of making God known among the nations. Mission and, and worship, our own praise of God, held together right at the start of this psalm. They are so related. Mission and worship, they come from a heart captivated by God, the same root for both of them. We had a, a quote from John Piper yesterday, another one that might be familiar as he writes on mission. He said this, mission exists because worship doesn't. That is, there are places where Jesus is not glorified and we long for him to be so. Mission exists because worship doesn't. But we can also flip that round. Mission exists because worship does. What will fuel the mission of us here as we leave the Keswick Convention and go back to our homes and our schools and our jobs and our families and our communities. What will fuel our mission is the same thing that fuels us as we sing. A heart captivated by God that, perhaps like the apostles in the book of Acts, we cannot help but speaking of what we've seen, what we've experienced, of the goodness and greatness of the Lord. We speak to the Lord of his goodness. We worship him. We speak to others of his goodness. One of the things I love about conventions like this is just talking to people, hearing stories of what people are up to. Often preface with, oh, well, I'm just in a, in a small church and not. And actually, what we're hearing is God's grace. These stories of God's goodness, the psalm calling all people to praise, calling himself to praise. Once again, hallelujah knocks at the doors of our hearts. And I confess on an evening like this, praise is probably coming naturally. Surrounded by God's people, led by a band, lots of things are working in my favour, but Actually, lots of the time, perhaps that's not the natural default position of my heart. And I wonder about your heart. What's the default dial on your praise meter between 1 and 10? The psalmist here, it's, it's turned up to 10. It is full volume. But we might ask, what is our default position for praise and worship? But I think a better question that this psalm invites us to is this. What leads the psalmist to be so all out in his praise and worship of God? And is that something we can learn from and join in with? What, what causes the psalmist to speak like this? A few of you might have met my, um, my little, little spaniel wandering around the place, mad little thing, Happy as you like. He's called Mr. Bingley, which, which, which for those who know Pride and Prejudice, just happy, contented, delighted in everything. 
And we maybe think, well, is, is this psalmist just one of those annoying people who is, who is just upbeat the whole time? It, maybe that's what's going on. Maybe it's a, a character thing. But actually the psalmist is going to teach us this isn't just his character. He's not just a sunny disposition. He has seen and meditated on the goodness of God And it is that that lifts his heart in praise. And he invites us to join with him. Not to look for reserves and deep wells of praise within our hearts. He invites us to look up. To gaze on the glories of God. And in doing so, to have our hearts lifted in praise as well. In the Bible overview seminars that I've been leading, we've been, we've been noticing how gratitude just comes from seeing God's generosity. And what a, what a powerful thing. We've been thinking about this whole convention. Gratitude as a, as a driver for the Christian life. But as I've, as I've been pondering, certainly in my own Christian life, I think I'd misunderstood gratitude for so long. Let, let, me, let me run how I have understood it. And I wonder if this chimes with anyone. Uh, gratitude for me was, God has done so much for you. God has, done, God has blessed you. God has done so much. He even sent his son to die for you. And so now what are you going to do for him in return? When God has done so much for you, what are you going to do for him? And that sounds like gratitude, but actually, that's guilt. That's, that's not a right response to what God has done. That's, that's just legalism, but in nice and fancy clothes. But the psalmist here calls us to praise, calls us to be grateful, but not in a kind of, God has done so much for you, so now what will you do for him? But meditate with gratitude on who God is, on what God has done, And we'll see that leads to greater trust, greater delight, greater love for God. And it's from these things that the Christian life flows. Not paying God back for what he's done, but rather a God who has done so much can be trusted. A God who is this good, I love him and so want to be with him want to be like him, want to serve him. I think that explains that where the psalm moves in verse 3. It might seem a strange place to go. In a praise psalm, a psalm that speaks about how great God is, verse 3, do not put your trust in princes. There's actually only two commands in the psalm. I don't know if you noticed as it was read. Only two direct commands. Praise the Lord and do not put your trust in princes. They may seem like very different things, but praise and trust are bound together. We praise God, we live for him because we trust him. And part of the psalmist helping us to have our hearts lifted to God is to wean us off other things we might be tempted to trust in. To wean us off those places we might wrongly place our trust and our confidence. Those things we might wrongly Look to for stability, for security, 
for hope. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. I think the princes here, it's not so much royalty as great ones. Do not put your trust in great ones. The great leaders, the the powerful, the ones we think are the ones to be emulated. And isn't that such a common tendency? I certainly know that. I, I want to follow a great leader. I want to align myself with a popular and powerful organization. I want to look to someone and I think, okay, they're at the helm, we're okay. But princes, the great ones, cannot save because, well, firstly, they're finite. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. They don't last. Even the best leaders, institutions, churches, conventions don't last forever. They're finite. But also, I wonder, this language of their spirit departs, they return to the ground, that's, that's Genesis 3 language of the, the curse of, of death following sin. I wonder if there's perhaps a sense here of these great leaders, these institutions, the great ones we might look to, they are finite but also fallen. We, we all are. Even our best Leaders are fallen, sinful human beings. Even our best churches are full of sinful human beings. And so the psalmist says, whilst we may thank God for people and places and institutions, do not put your ultimate trust in them. They won't last. And ultimately they will disappoint if you try to build on them. Well, what might this look like for us? Who, who might be these princes, these human beings we look to? Well, it can apply, I think, at a number of levels, and as an individual level. I think of a friend of mine, and she speaks of coming back to this psalm regularly as she perhaps is in a moment where she's longing to be in a relationship, she's longing for a husband, and if ever she catches herself thinking, that will that will be it, that will be success, then things will be okay. She reads Psalm 146, verse 3. Do not put your trust in princes, or in other translations, in men who cannot save. And reminds herself, no, only the Lord will truly satisfy. Or perhaps we might be in a relationship with, with a loved one, or a family member, or a friend, and we we maybe treasure them, but if we build too much and think this is the person who will get me through, well, actually, what a crushing burden to place on anyone. But also, all humans are mortal. All humans are sinful and ultimately will not carry us through. And the psalmist says, there may be great people we can celebrate and thank God for, but don't put your ultimate trust in them. Looking around the world, We live in an uncertain world, don't we? I I feel the last few years, I've said that phrase from the the pulpit more and more times with both, uh, remember Brexit, when that was the the, the big thing we were all concerned about. 
and now barely makes the papers, pandemics and wars and cost of living crises and so many things. And we think, where will we look to? And we thank God for good leaders when we have them. Wonderful to hear of work being done, prayer groups in Parliament. We, we should pray for our leaders and institutions. We should thank God for those who do seek justice. We should pray for those in positions of authority. But let's not pin our hope on any one leader, on any one party, on any one government, thinking they will be the ones to ensure our future. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that day, their plans come to nothing. We can't put our ultimate hope in these leaders. But maybe more pointedly in church, who are the great ones? Who are the, who are the big names that we might be tempted to trust in? Maybe in mission. I don't know, am I the only one who has a list at times in my, in my worst moments? I have a list of, if only this influential person, and it changes over time, and it's a pop star, or it's a politician, or it's a, a scientist, or someone, if only this person came to faith, then all my friends would believe. And we just think, if we just need the one key influential person, and depending on which circle of life we move in, that may be a different person, but if only this person came to faith then we'd make some progress in evangelism. 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. The hope for world evangelization is not the great ones, it's not the princes. It's that Christ is risen, he's poured out his spirit on all his people. See, this is, this is wonderful news. Francis Schaeffer in the 20th century wrote, wrote a book called No Little People. A, a wonderful truth about the church. There are no little people to God. God isn't interested in just the great ones. He's not more impressed when a powerful, influential, intelligent, well-educated, well-connected, whatever you might describe it as, person c- comes to faith and the Lord thinks, phew, now my plans can get back on track. So you're just looking ahead one psalm, Psalm 147. The Lord's pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. There are no little people, and maybe some of us here at Keswick Convention, that's what we need to hear. Maybe you think your age or your mental faculties or a physical disability or your circumstances prevent you from being useful in the kingdom of God. Maybe you think your past rules you out from being useful in the kingdom of God. The things you've done or the things that have happened to you. Maybe you think that serving God and being fruitful in his kingdom is only an option for other people. Maybe you think that that ship has sailed. And how glorious. How glorious that we are all one in Christ Jesus And in Christ, we are one body, all different members, all with a part to play. 
all have a part to play in God's kingdom. How we, how we need to hear that in a society that acts very differently to that. And sadly at times a church that sometimes acts as if that's not the case. But we don't look to princes, we don't look to great ones. You see, if Schaefer's right and there are no little people in the kingdom of God, then there are no big people either. People who preach a million sermons, plant a thousand churches, speak at a hundred conferences, are not more important in God's kingdom than a person who's done none of those things. God's not impressed by our power or our eloquence or our influence. Think of a single mum living in a 25th floor council flat, trying to bring up her kids, just trying to get by, and she never preaches a sermon, never plants a church, she writes no books. There are certainly no books written about her. Actually, there aren't any books in the flat. In the world's eyes, she's not a big person. But in the Lord's eyes, there aren't big and little people. We won't find a biography of her. My slight frustration with Christian biography sometimes is that some, sometimes they do seem to say, look at this big person. And the Lord says, there are no big people. I'm a big God and I choose to use all my people. I don't need the strength of a horse or the legs of a warrior, rather those who delight in me. This is, this is glorious but humbling for those of us who maybe like to think we're big people, maybe like to think we're important, maybe like to think the Lord is lucky to have me on his team. My prayer for the Keswick Convention is that we would not be a convention known for big people. A convention that pulls in the big names, but rather we would value, how long have I been coming, six years or so, and and as I'm looking at speakers, we would value those who might be totally unknown, but trust in the Lord, put their hope in his unfailing love. A speaker who when is announced, maybe 30 people say, oh I know that name, that's my pastor. They serve faithfully every week, I didn't know they were a big deal. And they're not. But the Lord uses those who delight in his steadfast love. He doesn't need big people. Why? Because look at who the Lord is. Verse 5 to the end, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. Why don't we need big people? Because God is such a majestic God. A God this magnificent, this self-sufficient, here's the thing, doesn't need us. And that's liberating. He doesn't need the Keswick Convention. He doesn't need your church. And that's gloriously liberating because our sufficiency is in him. And the rest of the psalm paints a picture of him. You see, not just his greatness, but also his character. Remember the two problems with human 
leaders, these, these great ones, they're finite but fallen. The Lord, infinite in power, mighty and majestic, but actually that's not where the psalmist wants to land and focus. Because verse 7 to the end is not on the Lord's power, but his character. Praise the Lord, says the psalmist. Why? Because he's the biggest kid in the playground? No. Because he is so good. Let me read from verse 7. This portrait of our God. He upholds the cause of the oppressed. In in a world where we're looking for leaders and choosing leaders, isn't that something we want from a leader? How do they use their power to uphold the cause of the oppressed? Who gives food to the hungry. A, A God who gives, not takes and demands. A God who gives. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. Words perhaps taken from Isaiah 42 that we heard read. Also Isaiah 61. Isaiah that speaks of the the, the glory days to come. That speaks of a servant who will come and restore all things. And what will the signs of his coming be? The eyes of the blind being opened, captives being freed, good news being proclaimed to the poor. And Jesus stepped onto earth and he opened the eyes of the blind. He freed people from their slavery to sin, from their slavery to demonic possession. He proclaimed good news to the poor. Jesus lived this psalm. This is a portrait of our Lord hundreds of years before he came. This psalm answers the question, and I think it's one of the most important but under-asked questions, and it's this, what is God like? Just, by a, just maybe by a, a, a nod of the head, just indicate to me if you've ever said something along the lines of, maybe when explaining Jesus to, to a friend, you've said something along the lines of Christianity is not so much a, a, a religion, not so much rules, but it's a relationship. And he nods to the head. Is that sort of somewhat familiar? I see some nods around the room. Christianity is a relationship. That's right. It's about relationship with God. Well, if you have a friend who tells you they're in a new relationship, surely your first question is going to be this. What's that person like? Tell me about their character. And this psalm answers that question, what what is our Lord like? He is this sort of person. He's the sort of person who, when he has complete freedom to do what he wants, he decides to give food to the hungry. He's the kind of person when he has no restrictions on how he will use his power, he decides to set prisoners free. He's the kind of Lord, who when he comes down to earth to most fully reveal his character, he opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up tenderly those who are bowed down. Just read the Gospels and see Jesus' sternness when confronting evil. But incredible tenderness. Remember Simon Peter's mother-in-law? Jesus just cast out demons. And then tenderly he just reaches to Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Actually, I think without a word even, just takes her by the hand. And lifts her up. 
Jesus, when he met those in need, we, we, can, we can brush over these three words, but moved with compassion, he engages with them. What is God like, we say, and in Jesus we see the answer. Compassionate. Verses from Isaiah 42, gentle, lowly, kind. In a world of uncertainty and so many leaders we feel we can't trust, we meet a God who is like this. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. And maybe that's some here today. Maybe bowed down by circumstances. Just feeling beaten by life. And know the tender compassion of Jesus. He knows our wounds. He deals gently with us. He loves to care for the weak. I have to say, I love that that's the God I serve. That's a God I want to follow. That's a God I can trust. Maybe it's our sin. Maybe we feel bowed down by our sin. Well, this is a book by John Owen, Commune with the Triune God, and he speaks of the Lord lifting up the bowed down. He describes it like this. He says, I mourn in secret under the power of my lusts and sin where no eyes see me. But the Father sees me and is full of compassion. We need not run from the Father, but rather to his open arms of love. For by his Son and Spirit he can renew and strengthen us. He stands not over us in judgmental silence. But he sends his word and wisdom that we might know the power of his redeeming love. When we sin, run from him. That is the last thing he desires. Run to him. This is to understand the glory of the gospel. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves to lift up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. And for those who remember Psalm 32 a few days ago, the righteous here is not the perfect. It is those who have come to Christ of forgiveness. Not the flawless, but those who said, Jesus, I need you. And in Christ we are made righteous. And the Lord loves his people. And oh, what love. Not just a feeling, though it is a feeling towards us. But again, our friend John Owen, this is an active love. A love that makes things happen. Owen says, Jesus loves life into us. He loves his grace into us. He loves holiness into us. Think of your growth in holiness. That way Jesus is loving his holiness into you. He loves you to make you more holy. And he loves you and by that love takes you all the way to heaven. He loves you into his kingdom. No human being, no lover, no husband or wife ever outloved the love of Jesus for his bride, us, the church. Owen puts it like this, Jesus' heart is glad in us. Jesus' heart is glad in you. And Owen says, and every day whilst we live is his wedding day. The Lord loves 
the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. We see God's care for the weak. This trio, these were the most needy in the ancient world. These were those who didn't have it in their own resources to get by. Those who on their own would not be able to get through. The particularly needy ones receive particular love from the Lord. And how wonderful that is. Maybe there are those today who feel particularly vulnerable. Well, know Christ's particular love and affection and care for you. And as God's people sing this psalm, we are both to celebrate what is the most powerful being in the universe like? He's one who is absolutely committed to defending the weak. I'm not sure I could worship a God who wasn't like that in truth. But he is absolutely committed to defending those who can't defend themselves. Praise the Lord. And as we celebrate this aspect of his character, I think that is to form in us the same character. To form in us the Christ-likeness of thinking, who are those in our society? Who are those in my church? Who are those in my community who are particularly vulnerable? And I know if Jesus were here, he would gravitate to and show compassion to. And then as his church, might we be those who do the same? Might we be Christ's hands and feet to care for those who are particularly vulnerable? This is what God is like. We don't have to imagine what God is like. We see in this psalm, we see fulfilled in Christ, a God of astonishing goodness, astonishing compassion. And so... The application, well, the psalm concludes as it began. Praise the Lord. The psalmist has been encouraging us, not look within for deep wells of praise, not look within for the resources, but look up to him. Maybe have our eyes open to the sheer goodness of God. Ponder Christ's character. Maybe just ask yourself this question. What excites you about Jesus? That's a great question as we prepare to go and share Jesus with our friends. Can we share with our friends something that excites us about Jesus? Maybe if we haven't worked that out yet, spend some time, read through a gospel and just say, Lord, show me Christ. Let me see more of his glory and beauty. The greatest privilege of heaven will be to see Christ, to gaze on his beauty. And therefore, the greatest joy of this life is to begin that now, to spend this life seeking to gaze on Christ. We can never drink too deeply from the fountain of Christ's goodness. We can never gaze for too long on our Saviour. So in the words of a song we'll be singing shortly, Behold your God. This is a praise psalm, but it's really a behold your God psalm. Spend some time pondering him. Spend some time meditating on his character, on the different facets 
of his amazing love. And let that be what both ignites your worship and fuels your mission. Some words from an old hymn, Emmanuel's Land. It goes like this. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There, to an ocean fullness, his mercy doth expand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Behold your God, look to Christ. And let that be what helps us join in with the psalmist to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. Amen.